You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. And thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you coming on our show and helping us with this. Um, can you tell us a little about you and your ICU journey? Sure. Well, I ended up uh, spending uh, 76 nights in the hospital. 34 of those were in ICU. Um, I have a condition called, it's a chronic illness called myasthenia gravis. And what that means is that uh, I can, uh, I, well, I end up with severe muscle weakness. And uh, part of MG, which is the short name for myasthenia gravis, um, is you can have a, a, what's called a crisis, where you go into respiratory failure. And uh, in the fall of 2017, I ended up going into respiratory failure. And uh, that's how I landed in, in intensive care on a ventilator. Wow. And what was that like for you? Well... So I kind of knew, like, my neurologist had warned me that ending up on a ventilator was a possibility with, with MG. And uh, so when I was starting to get some severe weakness, luckily I ended up, I was in emergency when I went into respiratory failure. Um, so I knew to expect that I would be going on a ventilator. And I've always just kind of thought of being on a ventilator as, as some equipment that helps you breathe. I never really thought of it as life support until mm -hmm. after I'd gotten out of the hospital and, and uh, a friend of the family, uh, you know, sort of gave their feeling on how, you know, how they would react if they ever had to go on a ventilator. But for me, I just, you know, I knew that it was part of this chronic illness and that if I went into respiratory failure, because I was, you know, my muscles got so weak that I couldn't breathe on my own, that, um, you know, I, I guess I knew it was a possibility. And, uh, you know, when I woke up in ICU, um, you know, I was restrained. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't, and I, you know, I did have some medication to sedate me, um, but I certainly, you know, I was, you know, I did wake up um, and it didn't take very long for, for, for my nurse to, uh, to take the restraints off because I think he knew that I was at very low risk of, of pulling out the two. Is that because of your weakness or because you were so awake and appropriate? I think. You know, so I could move my arms um, because I remember like waking up and of course I was kind of looking around at first and trying to, you know, piece together what had happened. Uh -huh. um, and I remember vid vividly being down on emerge and, and, you know, telling my husband that I needed help, that I kind of couldn't breathe anymore. And, you know, a whole team coming in and, you know, I was, you know, knocked out to put, to put the tube in and then basically woke up, you know, a few hours later. Um, so it took, but it took me like a few minutes just to kind of piece things together for, yeah. and I was able, I was able, even though I was ashamed, I could still move my hands around. Like, you know, I, uh, you know, I realized, oh, geez, like my, my underwear are gone. Like what's happened here? <laughs> uh -huh. um, you know, just kind of 
figuring it out. And then it was like, oh, oh, wait, yeah, that's right. I went into I went into respiratory failure and kind of just from there, it was like, oh, OK, um, you know, but I mean, it's different to be on a ventilator. I mean, you can't talk. Um, personally, I drooled a lot. So I kind of, I've, what I've mentioned to a few people is that I really felt like a St. Bernard <laughs> dog with all the drool. Uh -huh. um, but I always thought of it as something to help me breathe if I needed that. And it's, it's you know, I did get a, and I had my phone the whole time. I actually managed to send a text message to my boss at the time saying, I'm in ICU. Oh, wow. So I was, you know, I was fairly with it, even yeah. though I may have been, well, I was, you know, I did have some medication to kind of take the edge off. Um, did you, did you try, were you panicked? Did you try to pull your tube out? No, no, I never, I, no, no, I never, ever tried to pull the tube out. And again, it was because I knew I was aware enough that I knew that I needed that to help me breathe. Yeah. And I see that a lot with my patients. I personally feel like it is safer to have people with clear minds and be awake and understand their situation to protect the tube. I think we go to this other extreme where we feel like people have to be completely knocked out, not move a muscle in order to keep the tube in. But I see people react the same way you do, where at first they're like, where am I? What is going on? And then once they remember what they were told, you know, half an hour, few hours ago, then they're pretty okay. Was the tube uncomfortable? Did it make you panic? Um, well, so it, so initially, um, you know, I was on um, fentanyl, you know, a very low amount of fentanyl. So uh -huh. re and so I was just very, you know, I felt very aware. And it was like, I was feeling, you know, very cozy, like I was wrapped up in a big blanket with a nice cup of hot chocolate. Uh huh. Um, and so I didn't feel any discomfort at that point from the tube. Good. Now, and my journey through the hospital was a little bit different because I started in ICU. I went to a step down unit. I ended up on uh, a neurology ward because MG is a neuro uh, neurological disease. Uh -huh. And then ended up having trouble um, uh, clearing clearing my secretion. So my cough wasn't strong enough mm -hmm. and landed back up in ICU uh, a second time. And that, and that's part of the 34 nights. Um, so I think it was something like 13, 13 nights at first, a couple of other spots, and then back to ICU for another 21 days. On the ventilator again? Pardon? On the ventilator again? On and off the ventilator. I was actually ventilated four times. We kind of overdid it one night with with the cough assist because we were really just trying to get, get my lungs cleared. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, so the fourth, this is probably fairly unusual, but, and, and by the fourth, like by that fourth time, I wasn't on any fentanyl anymore. I was managing the discomfort with Tylenol. Uh -huh. And the fourth time I was actually awake when we put the tube in. So wow. we just did some, and I was, and I was like, okay, like we gotta, you know, I gotta go back on the vent again, basically. And so we just did local freezing for the fourth time. So I was wide awake. And we just, you know, that little spray freezing that, yeah. that you guys use. Um, so we did that and I got, I went on the ventilator the fourth time and I was wide awake for it. And you were okay with that? 
Yeah, yeah, I was absolutely fine with it. It was just a matter of staying calm, like trying to, you know, staying calm, like I knew, like I knew I needed to do that. And then, and then, like, after that, like, I made the decision to get uh, to be trained. And, you know, we had really held off on, on, um, on me doing that procedure, just because more of the scar tissue. Uh And I have to say, like, the respiratory therapists that, um, that, uh, that had been, you know, helping me out on this journey, they were really terrific about providing some information about, you know, you know, what it was going to be like to be trached and that kind of thing. So anyway, I decided that I want to do the trait because at that point for, for going on and off event, like it just felt like a step back and I just wanted to be able to move forward and, and build my strength up. Uh-huh. Cause again, for me, this was a muscle weakness issue. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I did the trait and uh, I, I wanted to mention that, um, you know, being trached is actually a little bit more comfortable them being on the tube because you don't have all that gear up around your face everything's down around your neck uh-huh yeah and, and every time you woke up and you were intubated or while you were being intubated um what was that like was it just okay here i am again and you knew you had a clear mind the whole hospitalization yeah yeah i would say i had a clear mind the whole hospitalization for example, and I had my phone. I had my um, I had my phone with me the whole time, um, even even right from the first day that I was hospitalized. So I have a teenage daughter, and I didn't want to see I didn't want her to see me on the ventilator because I just thought that would be a bit too traumatic. Mm-hmm. But I managed to text her anywhere from one to three times a day. So I like I even had a sense of the time of day. Um, you know, so yeah. would send her a message, you know, just to say good morning. I had a sense of when she was, you know, coming home off the bus at the end of the day. And I, and I'd managed, you know, most days to send her a quick text, just good night. And, you know, that was like, with very bad vision, because, um, again, with with my senior grab, it's like, you're, you're, you can end up with really bad double vision. Oh, yeah. And I also had, um, my eyelids were drooped. So I had ptosis of basically both, you know, both my eyes were pretty droopy, but I still managed to hold that phone up to, to one eye and, and get some texting out so that I could keep in contact with my daughter. And again, it was more, you know, because she was younger and I didn't want her at that point to see me on event, but I wanted to keep in contact with her so that she knew I was okay. And that I wanted to know, you know, how her day was going. And what did that mean to her and to you to have that contact? Oh, well, uh, you know, well, for her, um, I'm sure it was probably pretty important, um, you know, to know that that she was actually hearing from me. I mean, it was still a bit overwhelming with the fact that I was, you know, all of a sudden in the hospital and she was just starting high school. So she had moved to a brand new high school or a brand new school starting high school. So that was a bit of a wild, bit of a, you know, wild ride, I guess, for her. Um, But for me to be able to send her a message and to text, oh, that it really meant the world to me. And actually, there was one day um, I had a nurse at my feet and I had another uh, person I was doing plasma, uh, plasma I'm pretty sure that's the right name. Uh Um, So we were doing plasma and I was in the middle of 
you know, sending, sending my daughter a text and the nurse was asking me a question and I wasn't kind of answering quick enough because for me, I was just so, you know, desperate and anxious and wanting to make sure that I was in contact with my daughter. That was like my number one priority that, mm. um, we had, you know, um, let's just say that perhaps the nurse wasn't, wasn't very happy that I was, you know, focused on texting (laughs) and, uh, you know, kind of referred to me as being a a teenager. But at that point, like, I was just so desperate to stay in contact with her. I mean, it was, you know, I was just kind of trapped in my own body. And I was, you know, I was on a feeding tube, I was on a ventilator, you know, I was pretty much on every piece of equipment that you could hook somebody up to. I was, you know, in the middle of doing plasma phoresis, but I was still able to message with her. And for me, that was just so important. Wow. And you spent so long in the hospital. And if you had been sedated most of that time, you would have been so confused and you wouldn't have been able to even interact with people at the bedside. So knowing that you could have had such a different experience and course in your hospitalization, what does it mean to you to know that you were cared by, for by a team that started you on light sedation and then took it off and you had a clear brain? What does that in retrospectively mean to you? Oh, I think it's just absolutely amazing. So uh, for the, at the, the, the spot where I was at, there is very much a culture of, uh, of early mobility in the ICU. And, um, you know, I didn't realize actually until I listened to, I think it's the uh, second podcast, because I listened, I managed to listen to, a, to the first three of your podcasts. Uh-huh. And uh, I can't remember the physician's name. I think his first name is Terry. Yep, Clemmer. And yep. he... Yeah, and he was describing, you know, how how uh, sedated um, that some people are when when they're on a ventilator, and I was really um, surprised by that because that really was not my experience. So I didn't experience any delirium. Um, I left the hospital, so I would have I would have arrived on September fourteenth. I was discharged on November twenty ninth. And I actually made it back to work on a gradual return to work the next summer. And I had a few folks um, that uh, had worked in the, that were working in the hospital that, that, that didn't think I'd make it back to work for a couple of years. Uh-huh. But, you know, about six months later, I, I was, you know, I went, started back to work and it was on a gradual return to work and it was hard, but I made it back to work full time. And I really credit, uh, you know, and I still have to, you know, manage myself because it's a chronic illness. Yeah. Um, but I'm amazed that that I made it back to work full time. And I really, I really credit, um, you know, the lighter sedation, the the commitment to mobility, for me being able to, you know, continue with, uh, you know, an, an active life and, you know, being able to, you know, con- make contributions. Oh, I love hearing that, Anne. And that is so powerful from someone that really needed ventilation for so long, but you had your brain preserved. And so in this time of talk about ventilators, we're going to have a flood of people on ventilators. And though COVID-19 is a different process and infection. Correct. What would you tell our medical and especially ICU community about being on the ventilator? And what would you advise us to do and not do? Well, 
So if, and I mean, every, you know, every person's different. And I think it's really important for there to be, you know, patient centered care. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, really, you know, starting out, you know, with, in terms of, you know, medications, you know, you know, maybe start lower and then work up if you need to, as opposed to, you know, and uh, I'm using lay terms here, like really knocking somebody out and then, and then maybe lowering. So I think, you know, the, you know, the less medication, the better. And, you know, making sure that and so my understanding is that a lot, a lot of people are going to be in ICU by themselves. You know, if if they can have if the person can have some way. And again, I'm talking, you know, I have a cell phone, um, you know, so if the person can have a cell phone and a charger so that they can communicate with their loved ones. I mean, that really means a lot. The other really great thing that um, I found helpful in terms of, you know, being awake is, you know, I listen to a lot of music. And, um, and I also did practice some meditation. I use, there's an app called Calm that, um, that I spent a lot of time listening to that. Um, and, and, you know, just trying to, you know, stay calm and be with it and, and, you know, just do what I needed to do to, to, to recover well, to recover well enough to be able to go finish my recovery at home. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And the, and the other thing I want to mention too. So, you know, and again, this comes down to, you know, everybody's different, but, you know, I have my vision, I have, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, um, and, uh, you know, and I, I have my hearing. Um, so, so, you know, so, you know, those are things I don't want to assume, not like not everybody has that. But one of the things I would suggest too, and this is like a small thing, that if someone is awake, and they are well enough to be on, you know, on their phone or iPad or something to communicate with loved ones, you know, and if they have to have a SATS monitor, so that little thing that you people normally put on their finger, uh-huh. if that can go in a big toe to free up people's two hands, that's really helpful. Oh, I love it. No, totally true. <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. one of those small things. But um, I, I just remember like, it sort of coming up in conversation, I was like, you know, I would write notes or, you know, I would try to get the monitor down on my on my big toe myself, just because I really wanted to keep my hands free so that yeah. I could, you know, message with with people. And a SAT probe is really essential for safety and monitoring. But we need to see that being able to text and have your hands free, having something free while you're stuck in a bed is just as important to the patient. So thank you for that perspective. Your insight is so powerful and I hope that we can provide the same kind of care that you received to these COVID patients so that they can have similar, if not even better outcomes. Thank you so much, Anne. You're welcome. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.